Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in for the fifth episode of our podcast, Groundbreakers. On this podcast, we interview early stage founders and real estate investors to hear their stories of a let them have success in their career and their journey from zero to one. I'm joined today by Zach Gorman, CEO of BHR. BHR is the ultimate property intelligence solution for real estate investors. BHR's flagship product, Real Reports, provides comprehensive property information for every home in the United States, powered by over 30 top data providers and Aiden, an AI real estate co-pilot which can answer any property question instantly. Thanks so much for joining us, Zach. Very excited to have you on the show. Yeah, of course, Domingo is so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I think we all love to hear your story. I think you've had a very, very interesting founder story. Um, so we'd love to hear what you were doing, you know, before BHR. Um, you've had a very diverse career. I know you're a music producer, a designer, and even worked in the defense industry. Like, what led you here? And yeah, walk us through that journey. Sure. Yeah. Uh, definitely non-traditional path, though. I think that's probably becoming more and more common nowadays. And for you know, I think that's good. Um, but I, without going too far back, I went to school for. Uh, Arabic and Middle Eastern studies. So when I left school, I moved to DC um, and started a stint in management consultant um, and was working uh, adjacent to a bunch of different defense organizations. So DOD, Department of Homeland Security, um, and doing a lot of modeling for defense spending algorithms. Um, That was all fine and good, uh, but it wasn't something that I ended up being that passionate about. So um, I actually grew up as a classically trained pianist, competitive musician, and decided I would have my, you know, my go at it. So um, I pivoted into the music industry uh, and spent the better part of a decade as a touring electronic musician and producer, um, recording artist, and really through a lot of my experience in the music industry that sort of i think you know helped me build up the chops that i bring to startups nowadays because a lot of that experience you know starving artist kind of thing like you're out there on your own you got to figure it out there's a lot of pieces around just making the music that you know either you have the money to afford or you don't in my case it was the latter so i really had to be the one cultivating the brand the identity the marketing the design uh, you know, all of those things that sort of feed into the business of music. Um, so yeah, I did that for about 10 years. Alongside that sort of built up, um, you know, really reinforced the design side of what I was doing there. So I started doing that kind of work for other people in the music industry, larger labels, and then sort of expanded that into, you know, sort of a side hustle, uh, doing marketing brand full suite kind of stuff for, uh, all sorts of brands, irrespective of industry. Um, and yeah, uh, sort of to close that out, you know, I I got really interested in product design and product development. That was just sort of a, a piece of that whole world that I hadn't really tapped. So I really started focusing a lot on that. And then my co-founder, who I've known since college, were incredibly, incredibly co- close friends. He was starting a uh, tech-enabled real estate brokerage called Tori. Um, and it was sort of this perfect timing where I was winding things down with music looking for the next opportunity um, on the design front. And so we started collaborating together on the early, early phase of that company. Um, And then I joined on as co-founder a couple months later. uh, And that was sort of the beginning of the traditional tech startup part of my career. Wow. That's such a range of different like areas to be in. And I love the analogy for the starving artists that now tying back into like being a founder as someone also starting a company, like, 
definitely feel the hunger of being very resource constrained and like that really pushing you to just do way more than you thought you could. Um, so would love to dig into, I guess, your first venture into the space, Tori. Um, you said you met your co-founder. He was a longtime friend. Um, how was it being building that in such a competitive space? Um, like we get that question all the time, building home base, like super, super competitive. How sure. do you differentiate yourselves? Because you guys are still running that. It seems to have, you know, good success so far. Yeah. So, you know, we're most of what we spend our time on now is our new venture, which I'll go into in a sec. But yeah, I mean, we, we started Tori in 2017, built that up, got it to profitability. Um, and now it can really run on its own. We've got great leadership on that side in place. And, you know, we're there in sort of an advisory capacity and help keep the lights on. But I mean, I would be I would be lying to you if I said it wasn't a grind, um, you know, right around that time, there was a huge I think people sort of think about it as like the second wave of prop tech um, was sort of happening all at once. So there was a ton of capital pouring the space, I think, sort of venture, you know, re reawakened to the idea that like, hey, real estate, immense, immense opportunity. Like, why hasn't anybody done anything here? So <clears throat> there was a lot going on. I will say that that had benefits and uh, it also created a lot of hindrances. Um, the VC model at the time seemed to really be focused on, or rather VC attention seemed to be focused on prop tech models that were sort of refashionings of financial models that have existed for 20, 30 years. Um, and in many cases, to be quite honest, I think a lot of those models are predatory models, um, you know, things where People need fast liquidity, so you know they'll offer all cash up front, kind of that kind of stuff. Um, you know that makes for a really tasty business when things are up and rates are good, and you know there's a lot of inventory. But I think if you look at public market now and you look at all the companies that were getting that investment around that time, you know the incredible majority of them are down ninety percent, and many of them are just gone altogether. Companies that rate they raised hundreds of millions of dollars. They're gone. So probably more context than you need. But that time was just chaotic because I think it was, we had to have, you know, our business model for Tori was sort of vertically integrate the full purchase stack. We wanted to create sort of a one-stop shop powered by technology and providers that could take somebody through the entire home ownership journey from, you know, listing, buying, and ownership. And that's a lot of work. Um, and, you know, I think it took a lot of patience and it took a lot of, you know, just mental fortitude to not capitulate and say, like, let's just throw in some financial model hook, you know, that's going to help us raise money really quickly. Like we really had to dig in and have a lot of conviction around what we were building. Needless to say, I think that also probably slowed us down for a period of time as well. Um, so. TLDR, it was a chaotic time. Um, and I think, you know, at the end of the day, though, we are better for it. And, you know, where many of those businesses that raise a lot more money um, are now gone or down, you know, in public markets, our business is still around and it's profitable and it's growing. So uh, harrowing time for sure. <laughs> I mean, very timely, too. I think we worked as file for bankruptcy this week and it's all over the news. So, yeah. Given you guys launch around the same time and it's profitable, still running, like that's an insane feat that I think not enough people truly appreciate to the extent that it should be. Um, you did mention it was a grind. 
as all early stage companies are. Um, and you're now a multi-time founder now working on BHR. Like, we'll love to think, like, we'll love to talk through like what were some of your key learnings building Tori. Um, you know, what led you to figure out the initial PMF and starting to grow that out? Um, and you know, what have you taken into BHR? Yeah, I mean, you know, the learnings at a high level uh, and the supplies, you know, I carry these till this day, but you you need to have patience. You need to be authentic to yourself. And this is sort of head in the clouds kind of stuff, but it's honestly, you know, you're always going to have the tactical takeaways and things that really are specific to that business. But again, as a now working on a, another company, the patience and the grit, that's what's going to get you through. Um, so much about startups, as I've learned, is, you know, it's not in the idea, it's in the execution. Of course, you need to have validation around an idea and make sure there's a need for it and make sure there's a market for it. Um, and also making sure that that need and market is small enough that you can get real evangelists on your side and get those early customers who love what you do, but also broad enough that there's the opportunity, you know, a real opportunity. But also, you know, being cautious, you know, and we've done this before, where you try and boil the ocean and make something for everybody, and then it serves no one in a way that's meaningful to them. So that has been something I've definitely carried with me. Um, and again, just sort of the psychographic profile of being a founder, like you, you need to be ready to sign up for 10 years. Um, I know a lot of people sort of get into this, they're like, you know, they see that chart up into the left exponential growth and they start to sort of, you know, sit back and say like, Oh, that could happen pretty quickly if X, Y, and Z happens. And like, sure it could, but everything has to go right. And the reality of startups is everything goes wrong. And so if you're not really, if you're not really honest with yourself about like, listen, this is going to take a decade of my life to see anything happen. If you're not ready for that, then it's probably worth thinking about alternative options. And that's fine. Like, it's not to discourage anybody, but I just think it's foolish to go into the startup space thinking that things are just going to go your way really fast because just they absolutely won't. And the more and more I've been in the space, you know, sometimes I think you look around and you see the signal and you're like, oh, well, it worked for them, worked for whomever. Like, the more founders I talk to, 99% of them, like, you know, who really shoot the moon or, you know, make it happen and grow uh towards some you know some level of success it's because they grinded it out for years and years and years so uh i'm sure that's not like super awesome for anybody to hear but it's the reality and you know you can have a lot of fun along the way but you just got to know what you're signing up for oh for sure i used to tell everyone or so many of my friends like you should be an entrepreneur at least try it out and then now having done it for almost two years i'm like no it's a grind and you should absolutely know what you're signing up for. It's absolutely not for everyone. And it doesn't just tax you for like your personal time. It taxes your personal relationships. It taxes your relationship with your partner. So just know that that's what you're signing up for if you're going down the founder life. But at the same time, and I'm sure it's the same for you, it's been like one of the most rewarding personally to see things come to fruition and knowing that that's what you're building. You're bringing a product into the world. Yeah, and if you're, you know, and it can be hard because sometimes the market shifts and you have to adjust course and you're not necessarily working on the thing that you want to be working on that vision. You know, sometimes you have to make adjustments and course corrections, but when it's, when it's good, it's good. And like the high, you know, the highest highs and certainly the lowest lows. So again, I just think it's certain people are 
ready to sign up for that. And certain people, I think, you know, at least should take pause and, you know, think about it. And, you know, there are other ways to skin the cat. Like you can go join a startup that's already out there and, you know, get a bit of a taste without the, you know, immense pressure of being the person who's sort of, you know, the final say and the final responsibility of it. So if anybody's sort of feels caught in the middle, my suggestion would be like, go join an early team instead of just starting immediately, go get that experience because you're also just going to learn so much faster. And again, having come at it from the other way where I sort of just started, fortunately, my business partner, James had run a couple companies before. So we were able to mitigate a lot of those like whoopsies along the way, but you're still going to have so many. And I think for many people experiencing that without having to be the one who's sort of the end all be all responsibility for it might also be a, a you know a better path forward to at least to get your your feet wet. Oh, for sure. There's some days where I wish that I was still Google just so I didn't have to make the decisions of like I wish someone would just tell me what the path forward was and I just do it. <laughs> yeah. I I I can understand that for sure. Yeah. Well, want to switch a bit of a few gears here and you know talk about what you're working on now at BHR. Um so you know, you said that that's what you're working on full time. You have Tori, it's profitable. Um, would love to hear just, you know, what led to the motivation of even starting that? What problem did you see in the market? And, you know, what did you initially build to solve that problem? Yeah, and this highlights another important thing, I think, in terms of just your earlier question, in terms of uh, lessons learned is, you know, Tori was my co-founder James's problem that he experienced. He had bought and sold a couple of homes. He sort of experienced the brutality of going through that process and all of the things, you know, the mishaps that can occur along the way. It's very much his problem. When I joined on, you know, for me, it was like, it was very interesting to me because it is this large problem. It's this incredibly archaic industry, but it was never my problem. And so I think on some level, you know, many years later, I have the emotional attachment to it. But that early hook of like what keeps you really hungry and passionate, I think comes from experiencing a problem firsthand. And I just didn't have that experience. Um, so with BHR, it's been very different because BHR truly grew out of our experience building Tori as the problems we faced and the challenges we faced building Tori that informed what we have now built with BHR. So a very different mental shift. And to be more explicit about those problems, you know, as we were building sort of both two sides, Anytime we were trying to build technology, because Tori had a lot of technology for consumers to help them, you know, find homes better, sort of a, a Zillow competitor on the search side. We use a lot of machine learning models to help people find the right home. And then we built a lot of back office software to make our agents more efficient. So purely on the technology side, anytime we were trying to add new data, enrich our site, enrich our listings, anything like that, in this industry, data fragmentation is a real problem. And it's fragmented geographically just by, you know, whether that's by parcel, state, zip code, neighborhood, what have you. Geographically, it's very fragmented. It's also very fragmented in terms of the types of data, you know, permits versus zoning versus climate risk versus flood insurance. You know, everything is scattered all over the place. Not to mention, you also have the issue of many of the existing providers of that data are incredibly protectionist. You have to sign massive, massive contracts, six figures, three-year terms in order to even get access to this data. And then in many cases as well, even if you can get access to data, you know, public record data, it's a mess. You know, it's, it's terribly organized. It's terribly maintained. And so 
we would go through months of product development, sort of just waiting on the data, as it were. And, you know, I think we took a big step back and it was like, going back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of, you know, venture was funding a lot of these like, you know, quick, easy SaaS models or iBuying models, things like that. But there wasn't a lot of investment into actual technology around real estate. And I think we sort of illuminated for ourselves like, well, part of this is these companies can't even get started. They're all rebuilding the same infrastructure for data because they all have to go through all these processes to source it, organize it, normalize it, pay for it, go through the contract process. And it was like, aha, like there's a huge problem here. And you know, I think we, it was just clear as day for us of like how immense, like if you're able to solve the problem of data accessibility for this space, there's an immense, immense opportunity but outside of just brokerage, you know, it could be for the entire industry we can touch on that in a sec. So we really, really, you know, experienced that on the technology side. And then what sort of steered BHR's, you know, first product, our real reports, the way that we've commercialized the data we've put together is that we were looking at our agents and they were facing the same problems. You know, we had, you know, 30, 40 agents on our team. Every time they're trying to diligence an offer, get ready to go on a showing, you know, what have you, they're going to all these different sources themselves and trying to put together all of that data and make, you know, and not everybody's a statistician, not anybody can, you know, analyze all this data in real time super quickly. So it's incredibly laborious just for them to do their job as well. So again, it was just like we experienced it very, very closely on both sides and stepped back and we were just like, okay, like there's an opportunity here. So about a year and a half ago, almost two years ago at this point, we started laying the groundwork uh, for what now is BHR and our product real reports. And uh, yeah, so that was sort of the the early murmurings of it. But again, it's just important to highlight, I think, experiencing that problem firsthand, I think, is what makes for the best companies and the best founding teams. For sure. I think knowing what t- problem you're tackling is definitely like how you should be building a company versus just building a company and then looking for a problem. And I think the piece you really touched on around, it was the problem that you personally felt versus just one your co-founder felt. I do think that that's an issue that some co-founders run into when they're starting a company. Like one of them comes up with the idea, gets a co-founder on board, but that person is not fully bought in. And when you come to these difficult moments in the company, like that co-founder is probably much faster to like jump ship than the one who originally had the idea. And so just a warning to founders listening to this, as you're looking for a co-founder and thinking of starting a company, if there's a way that you can both come to an idea together, I think that leads to much more uh, longevity for the for the business, especially when you reach hard times. Yeah, uh, so, sure. yeah. So Zach, you mentioned around you know really solving the piece around data and how that's really tough to get access to, and that, like just going off of LinkedIn, seeing your emails, like you seem to be a B2B partnership machine. Like you're always releasing some level of new partnership online, which I think is phenomenal. And I think that's a very, very hard skill to build. Like what is, what's your secret? Um, what do you feel like has really helped you land some of these crucial partnerships that I think have made you guys so successful? Uh, well, I appreciate that. Um, I try and try and do my little LinkedIn influencer thing. Uh, you know, it's important to put signal out there. Uh, and I think for us, Momentum begets momentum. Um, so, you know, once you really get things rolling, then more people know and, you know, you can sort of it sort of rolls into itself. But I think at a high level, um, this the real estate industry is all about trust. It's all about relationships. And I don't think that 
I really understood that until many, many years down the road of, of building our first business. Um, I think you sort of hear that and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, what, is, what does that really mean? But it's really true. And like this, the real estate industry in particular is just, you need to put in FaceTime with people. You need to have those relationships. You need to build trust. Um, because the reality is, and, you know, I'm hopeful and I, I certainly feel, especially with a lot of the partners that we have, that things are changing, but there's a lot of vested interest in things remaining the way that they are or were in this industry, maintaining the status quo, which creates a lot of protectionism, which creates a lot of caution around new things, new ideas, new partnerships, because people don't, you know, a lot of, a lot of organizations out there don't want things to change. So in terms of just like kickstarting this, you know, I think part of it was just doing the reps and being in the industry for a long time and just having some of those initial connections and building those up. From there, again, it's just FaceTime. You know, in the last year or two, we've spent an immense amount of time at conferences, um, which, you know, they can be quite fun. They're incredibly exhausting. Uh, they're incredibly resource intensive. But the reality is 90% of the deal making in this industry gets done at the bar or the lobby, you know, at these conferences. And people, you know, and I get it, like, especially now it's like people are tired of zoom asynchronous comms. It's like, if you can just get in, in front of somebody back and you can just, you know, not only are you just getting the emotional connection of being in front of somebody and getting a much better read on like, who is this person? How do they do business? What are they like? Do I even like them? Do I want to do business with them? Because anybody you have a partnership with sure it can feel a bit, you know, peripheral or, you know, like surface layer because some business is business, but the reality is this is a small enough industry that you want to know that you like actually doing work and spending time with the people that you're actually doing business with. So high level FaceTime is important. Approaching partnerships with a lot of good faith and transparency, I think is critical. Having something that everybody benefits from. Um, a lot of companies are really quick, especially early on, to just want to have that one size fits all model because then you can just plug it in, copy, paste, copy, paste, and be off to the races. Like that feels really good. The reality, especially in the market that we're seeing right now, and you know, and have been sort of going through for years at this point, is everybody is a different puzzle piece here and they're gonna need different things from you. So, you know. Our clients are primarily large brokerages, MLSs, prop tech companies. So already you've got three very different categories, but then you break down just the brokerage side. You've got small brokerages, you've got massive national organizations. They're all being impacted in different ways. And so you need to have like the flexibility and the agility as a team to be able to conform on some level to the needs of each of the people you're working with. So whether that's, you know, on our side, having a rev share model for somebody or being able to cross sell into ancillary services or, you know, have advertising opportunities, exclusivity arrangements, different subscriptions. Like you just need to be able to be flexible because otherwise you're dead in the water, you know, you're dead on arrival. Um, it's, that's just the way it is. Um, you know, at scale, you can start, you know, once you're, once you've really hit a certain, you know, windfall, I think things change and you can be a bit closer to that, you know, one size fits all model, but getting started again, that's, it's appreciated on the other side The you know, the people you're working with want to know that you're willing to come to them. Like that's the, that's doing good business in my opinion. So it needs to be organic. It needs to be flexible. Um, yeah.
no, that makes a lot of sense. And I think the piece around momentum beginning momentum is a really big call out. Like companies see like, oh, BHR is having success. They've landed all these partnerships. I want to be a part of that as well. And can I benefit from that in some capacity? And the piece around conferences too, I think like a lot of founders don't know how to get the most out of conferences. They either feel like a huge time sink, a huge resource sink. And it's like, is this actually worth it for the business? I think if you're in B2B and doing any level of B2B sales, there's probably an argument to be made that any big conferences in your industry are worth going to if you can get the right meetings with the right players and you're very willing to just like stay till like midnight, going to different like social events and meeting people in person, to your point. Yeah, um, and it's it's not it's not even directly proportional to money necessarily, because I know a lot of people who you know, they'll pay for these massive sponsorships and booths and activations. And again, that stuff works, but you have to just be honest with yourself of where you're at. Like we're small still. So booths to me are far more about brand awareness, you know, and, and very high top of funnel for us, you know, in many cases, sitting on a sofa and taking meetings one-to-one with different, you know, stakeholders and executives, that's going to be a far higher impact, but, you know, going to zero to one, that's hard. We went to plenty of conferences where we just sort of sat there and we're like, had our hands up being like, I, I don't know what I'm doing here. And it felt awkward and it was weird. And, you know, I think we left <clears throat> feeling like, well, that was a waste of time. But once you put yourself out there, once you really, you know, start taking the time to actually get to know these people, you know, it doesn't take one honest, good, authentic conversation is enough to get you in the door with somebody in a way that then when you go to that conference, you can say hello. And, you just build from there. They'll introduce you to people in their sort of sphere of influence. Like you got to start somewhere, but again, it's all about just authenticity to me. Yeah. So that's actually what's going to be my follow-up question around like, how do you start making these um, conferences productive? Like you mentioned that putting in the pre-work is crucial. So do you feel like a big piece of the unlock for you was just figuring out who goes to these conferences, maybe seeing who you could theoretically partner with, scheduling meetings ahead of the actual conference, just as like a, hey, here's who I am. And then you're like, maybe on that call, telling them, hey, I'm gonna actually be at that conference too. We should meet in person, maybe grab drinks or something. 100%. I think it's really, it's lines, not dots. You know, you can't just expect to go to a conference cold and meet everybody, know everybody and be the hit of the show. and you know, get a lot of value out of that. <clears throat> in many cases, a lot of the people who, once we started having success at conferences that we were meeting, we knew them for a year or two, you know, longer. So it's really just about, you know, make, you may not feel comfortable. You may be like, oh, our product's not there yet. You know, that's fine. Reach out to somebody because you like what they're talking about. You like their product. Tell them about that. Like, there are so many ways to just, Put yourself out there that are not like a hard sell immediately and in fact many times the hard sell is not what somebody wants from their first interaction with you so come in provide value in another way or you know just give commentary on the value that you think somebody else is providing use that as a way to start a conversation be curious that that's the easiest way to do that and then again just stay top of mind like it feels weird and sometimes i feel weird posting on linkedin every week but i told myself i was like the beginning of this year, I was like, if I don't have something to say every week about what we're doing, then we're probably not moving fast enough where I'm not being creative enough, you know, and paying enough attention to what we're doing. Um, because 
one post, you know, it's the algorithm. Not everybody's going to see that. Like you need to just keep putting out signal so that anytime, you know, I think the, it, it's about like, it takes probably eight touch points before somebody really knows who you are or what you do. And so, you know, that just requires a lot of volume and the faster you can do that, I think the easier it is to really start to build up credibility for yourself and your business and also just get people interested in what you're doing and figure out who your customers are, like who's gravitating towards you, who's interacting with you, et cetera. No, that makes a lot of sense. I feel like you're one of the teams that iterates insanely fast. And I think like that comes from just years and years of experience, being a founder, like do, going to the grind. So any advice you give to like, you know, first time founders that are trying to figure out like, you know, how do I find product market fit? How do I even have conversations with my customers? Like how, what's that experimentation like for BHR and you know, what are some learnings you can share? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> goes back to what I was saying earlier about like authenticity. Part of that I think is adjacent to just honesty. Again, you're gonna, you need a vision. But the path to that vision is not concrete. You're going to start somewhere, and it's very possible that that is the wrong place to start. And for us with BHR, we definitely started in the wrong place. You know, we had this idea around data and accessibility around data. But actually, where we started was it was a blockchain play for consumers and their data. Um, and philosophically, like I, I very much still believe in in what we were pursuing there. But the sort of origins of our platform were much more for individual homeowners to upload data about their home, create an incentive loop where then they would be compensated with additional data that we provided about the property that they didn't have access to. Cool idea, not a good business. Um, consumers are very fickle. They don't wanna spend time uploading data about their home. They're not incentivized. They don't feel like they even need to pay for data. Like it, there were just so many roadblocks there and it was, it was almost hard to give up because we actually had, you know, so much support from our would-be demographic, but then nobody would actually take action. So we just had to sort of step back and, you know, stop taking that that little dopamine drug and say like, well, it feels really nice for people to tell us that they love our idea, but the reality is they're not doing what we want them to do. So we took a big step back and just, you know, sort of started from scratch, like a lot of the infrastructure we laid and the way that we were organizing data, that was all in place. So everything was still moving forward, but it was just the wrong business model and the wrong consumer. And so, you know, when we sort of reinvented BHR into our new product, Real Reports, and that's sort of our flagship now, that is now much more guided towards like, okay, consumers want that data, but they're not used to having to look for it, access it, or pay for it. And they're not even aware of what's out there. The people who are, are the real estate agents and the real estate professionals. Um, so we went to them and now we figured out, you know, all these different types of models to be able to really empower those agents. You know, they can use real reports to generate leads. They can use real reports for research and diligence. They can use real reports for just building trust and credibility, which is becoming more and more important given what's going on in the real estate world. So everything just sort of seemed to click into place, but like you have to you have to move fast, but you have to also just keep being honest with yourself. And that can be hard. Like our team, you know, we're a scrappy team of three. We're all technologists. We love building products. So on some level, we're willing to just like go hide in the cave and keep building and spinning up new features. But we ended up and it was it was painful. But now I think we all understand how much better our product is. We had to gut so much from what existed in there. 
And now it's like, it's so clear what this is. It's so clear what it does. And it's so clear that people find value in it. So, you know, ripping the bandaid is difficult, but like, you just got to move fast and you got to be honest with yourself because I've been a founder in sort of the tech startup space now for going on eight years. And the faster you can just have that earnest conversation with, with yourself, you know, you're just going to mitigate so much pain down the road. You, you don't want to keep telling yourself a tale. You need to know what to call bullshit on yourself. So uh, that's been certainly one of the big learnings along the way. Yeah. Can you share more? Like, I've, I've known you, I think, since you first started BHR and I do remember very clearly your original thesis. And I was definitely one of those people saying, like, there's definitely a lot of value here. Like, this is a really cool thing. And now, like, I'm actually a purchaser of real reports. Like, we actually use a product. And I don't know if I want to pay for the first iteration of BHR. So to your call out, like, very, very interesting one. Like, how long did it take for you to come to that realization? Because I know, like, even for us at Homebase, for a while, we were just heads down building. And then it wasn't until we did Techstars earlier this year, they're like, what the heck are you doing? You should be talking with customers and like understanding what they want. And then we're just like, oh my gosh, we had this whole thing backwards. You think, you know, users come to you, but in reality, you're building for what people actually are going to pay for. So yeah, we'd love to hear how long that realization took for you guys. I would call it, and part of this was serendipitous because it collided with a immense change in sort of cultural perspective and market conditions, but we were probably ignoring sort of the ideation phase of BHR because that took a couple months before we even had anything out there. But from like MVP launch until like real course correction was probably six months, which is longer than it should have taken. Um, but, you know, it's tar- it, at the very start, it, it's, it's hard to, you know, see the, the forest through the pines. But Again, with us, it was like we were getting a, starting to get enough feedback and getting enough customers to know that there were just not enough customers actually raising their hands for this. And again, like, you know, explain this was very much a vocal blockchain product. We were building a lot of infrastructure on that side. And then that entire market opportunity collapsed. And again, I have a lot of faith that there's still immense potential out there. But even just within that time, you know, we wanted to be very vocal about it because we understood that there was a lot of proponents for the the use case for blockchain technology and real estate, there still is. But normal consumers were like, I don't know what any of this is. I don't trust it. I'm hearing about FTX in the news. Like, I, I can't even touch this stuff. And it was like, we were just creating these like unnecessary barriers to entry. And so we dismantled a lot of that, made it a lot more accessible for people with no blockchain expertise, to, you know, didn't have to even interface with it. It was all sort of behind the scenes. But even still, then it was just clear once we sort of cleared the fog of the sort of technical overhead out of the way, then it was clear that there just wasn't demand on the consumer side. So it still took many, many months. But again, the vision has always been about just making real estate data accessible. And so a lot of what we were building along the way didn't actually have to be sort of, you know, retired. It, it, it was just the foundation and the data lake we were building is exactly the same process that we would have gone if we had just had real reports in mind to begin with. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think it's taken us, it took us around six months from our initial launch in like February to start realizing like we need to be experimenting, pivoting more because some of our legal frameworks like make it tough for us to keep selling properties in the same way we, we launched. Yeah. So I think coming to that realization sooner is definitely crucial. 
but also it's something to be careful with. You don't want to get stuck in like pivot hell where you're just continuously pivoting and then not actually understanding like what you're building. Right. Um, and there's, there is a fine line between you need to have enough conviction in your own ideas because the second you start bringing in too many other opinions who don't know your business, don't know what you're trying to do, don't have the emotional attachment to it. Again, it can feel it's this like little dopamine thing. You're like, oh, I'm getting feedback. This is great. We can iterate. We can iterate. But if the foundation isn't there yet, if you're too early, then you're going to have a zombie product, you know, or a Frankenstein product. And it's it's just going to be the collection of, you know, peripheral ideas. And it's not going to be close enough to the, you know, original spark. And then and then you're in your trouble for sure. <laughs> no, that's a great call out. Um, so I think I have to ask this just because you're working in the real estate data space. You know, what's your general sentiment of the real estate market? Where is that today? And where do you think the macro environment's going? Um, you know, it's, it's hard out there. And I think I, we really experience this because we're interfacing with the people who are, you know, the agents, the brokers, you know, the real estate professionals out there. So, and we come from that space. So we very much understand how challenging this environment remains. Um, what we're building is market agnostic, um, which is, you know, good for us, like the need for this data, the accessibility, the reports, like there's always going to be a demand for that. Um, it doesn't matter whether inventory is sparse, what interest rates are doing. Uh, so we have, we have some insulation from some of the tidal shifts that are happening out there. Um, and, you know, interestingly enough, I'm sure you've been following along and many of your listeners have been following along with like the Sitzer Burnett case going on uh and that verdict that just came down you know i i won't jump too far ahead because there's going to be a lot of appeals process like this is a long journey for the real estate industry but the fact is you know in two hours a jury came back and you know was and issued a verdict in favor of the plaintiff and then immediately an immense 200 billion dollar lawsuit was filed against many of the same participants. So no matter how the cards fall, like the industry is shifting a lot. And I don't want to say this with like any glee in my voice, because again, I, we our, our customers are the people who are being impacted by this, but it is a, a big windfall for us because now everybody in the industry is starting to step back and say like, okay, well, if buyer's agency is going to be more heavily scrutinized, regardless of how things really shake out with commissions, et cetera, no matter what, everybody's focused on that side of the house. And agents need to be thinking of new ways to provide value. A lot of those new ways are going to be accelerated by new technologies, new businesses, new services. And I think we're incredibly positioned to take advantage of that in a way that's served, you know, serves everybody's interest in ways that we all win. You know, we've had prior to that case coming out, we already had a lot of progressive minded brokerages reaching out to us being like, Hey, we just want to put in a hedge here. We understand that things, you know, could go this way. And we want to assure that we're positioning our agents for success and having resources like your real reports as part of our stack. So, you know, when somebody's sitting down with a buyer, they can be armed with like all of this data information that a normal agent just simply does not have access to. And then since the verdict, we've had a much larger influx of people being like, you know, okay, let, let's have a conversation here. So again, I don't relish in any of that. It's great for us as a business. It's just our duty and our responsibility now to like 
try and help as many people as we can position themselves for sort of what comes next. Because I do, you know, again, I don't, I don't want to project too far, but like things are moving and like there, there's a real possibility that things look very, very different in some short to medium term period of time for the entire industry. And if you're an agent out there, like you, you gotta, gotta think about how that's going to impact you. And you got to start thinking about like, what ways, you know, are you going to distinguish yourself and stand out for the crowd? So long winded way of saying like stuff's happening in a way that I don't think we've seen in a long time, a lot of changes. Um, but you know, with that comes a lot of opportunity and there are so many great prop tech companies out there and, you know, new businesses and new products and new services that are well, well positioned to be able to assist and, you know, make that a soft landing for a lot of people as well. Yeah, it's hard for me to argue against arming buyers with better data. So I think that's definitely a windfall for you guys. And I think something that's probably net beneficial for the industry, just at least for the consumer, right? They're going to be armed with better data and ideally not be preyed against by the agents that they're working with. So won't yeah. dive too much there, but appreciate you sharing your opinion and just giving us so much background on your journey and what you've built. And I think super excited for where BHR is moving forward. Um, that's all the questions I had for you, Zach. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Groundbreakers, and sharing your story. Any closing remarks you want to share? If people want to learn more about BHR and learn more about you, where should they go? Uh, sure. So our website is bhr.fyi as like for your information. Um, come to our site, learn about what we've got. My email is Zach at bhr.fyi. Uh, feel free to email me directly. Um, I'm happy to, whatever it is, whether you just want to have a chat about what's going on in the industry, um, about our product, anything, uh, you know, we're a small scrappy team. We love talking to people. We love getting feedback. So, uh, that's the best way to get in touch with us. And yeah, uh, thank you for your time Domingo. This is really fun. Really appreciate it. Of course. No, it was a pleasure having you on Zach. Uh, well, thanks everyone for listening to the fifth episode of Groundbreakers. We drop episodes every Tuesday morning and we'll continue to have awesome guests like Zach to share their story. Thanks so much. Cheers.